0: Well, I want to welcome you. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's word with you. Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46, Genesis 46? And we're in a series on the life of Joseph. Um, if my memory serves me right, I think we have three weeks left in the book of Genesis. And um, I'm not going to tell you what we're preaching on next. Um, I'm just going to keep you um, waiting, 1 Peter, but it's going to be a mystery that you won't <laughs> You won't be able to anticipate. I want to start off, and I want to talk to you about um, not unmet expectations, but low expectations. And if you have a relationship, whether it's with another person or an organization where there are low expectations, I want to just share with you some of the natural byproducts. And I think this will make sense probably with some personal experiences that you've had. Um, What happens? What starts to creep in? Number one, confidence erodes. Trust is challenged, connection struggles. Like if you don't really have confidence that someone's going to, or someone or an organization is going to do what they say, then you start to experience all of this relational tension. Uh, I wanna illustrate this with Dunkin' Donuts. Now, I recognize that the waters I'm about to walk into can be very divisive and not to the glory of God. Um, Just in our worship practice alone, I mentioned the word Dunkin' Donuts, and even the idea that I might say something critical or concerning uh, split our worship team. So this was the most divided worship team probably you've ever been under. Um, Anyways, so um, I have shared with you in the past my grievances with Dunkin' Donuts. Now, I am in awe, that they are an international corporation. I'm in awe that they're all over the United States of America based on only and solely my experiences with one Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) I've shared this with you. There is a Dunkin' Donuts. It may or may not be in the city of Barlett. It is. And (laughs) I am praying that the owner is not in this room. I don't know who the owner is. But um, here's what I do know. I do know that 100% of the time, Never got my order right, never. I almost went this morning to test it out <laughs> so that I could get up in front of you and say, see, but I didn't wanna waste my money or fund Dunkin' Donuts and anyway, so I went someplace else. Um, but it's interesting because um, over and over and over and over again, now here's, here's my challenge. I've had great friends sitting back there, there's some over here, worship team, who were like, they're the best. And then I asked them, do they get your order right? And you know what they almost always say to me? No, no, never. Like, they're always wrong. How do you build an international corporation based on getting everybody's order that wrong and the coffee isn't even that great? I mean, whatever. But uh, And so here's what's... <laughs> happened, low expectations have crept in. And so even when I drive by, it, it's very interesting. When I just drive by it, there's like this emotion that wells up and be like, you know, like I don't even want to go into the parking lot. I expect it's all going to be dilapidated and, and whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Just my low expectations have just accrued over Dunkin' Donuts. And I really loathe it. Somebody gave us a Dunkin' Donuts gift card for my kids. I still have it. I mean, I just, now don't even spend it. I'm just like, I don't even know what to do with this. I feel even guilty going there. So let's just, let's just is my confidence eroding? The answer is yes. Is my trust challenged? The answer is yes. Has my ability to connect with them as an organization with loyalty and my money and like coming again and again, has that struggled? The answer is yes. Let's give you, let me just give you an equation for this. Uh, low expectations are the result of plausibly other things, but primarily two things. Number one, repetitive unmet expectations. Repetitive, unmet expectations. And so when you have this basic low expectation that your coffee is going to be made right, when you have that uh, and it doesn't happen, then you begin to lose confidence, trust, and the connection struggles. But here's number two. I want you to, I want you to catch this. Uh, I'm going to move out of the Dunkin' Donuts world, okay? I'm going to move more into our personal lives, our relationship with God. And, and this morning, as we talk about low expectations, you'll see in your sermon notes the title of the sermon is Overcoming Low Expectations of God. And as I get to know uh, my own heart better, as I get to know many, many believers, what I find is that our expectations of God are very, very low. Now, here's the second ingredient to low expectations. Promises with no fulfillment date. So when, when, when somebody makes a promise... And they tell you, I'll do this on that date. You have a fulfillment date for that, right? And if they don't meet that expectation, that would be an unmet expectation. But God works very different. God rarely gives promises with a fulfillment date. And when there are promises given without the fulfillment date we, as followers of God, we begin to lose confidence and lose trust. Then what we do is we fill in a timeline with our own expectations. Can anybody give me an amen on this one in any way, shape, or form? Have any of you ever told God, you didn't promise me a date, but doggone it, you've waited too long, I'm smarter than you, and you should really take some counsel from me, oh, infinite, majestic one, all-knowing and wise, right? Like Anybody else ever experienced that? Good. And so here's what God does, and it's really, really irritating, I'm going to be honest, but he does not give us timetables. Now, does he have a meticulous timetable? The answer is yes. But does he give that to us? No. And what happens when God does not tell you the timetable, and he is taking longer than what you want? Let me tell you what happens expectations and confidence of God goes down. I want to come back to this. This is very important because if you have low expectations of God, your connection with God will struggle. Your confidence in God will struggle. Your trust in God will struggle. Eventually, your obedience to God will begin to diminish One of the the attributes that the mature disciple, follower of Jesus Christ has to fight for is high expectations of God despite timetables that are not at all what we want to see or how we have imagined things happening. Now, again, open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 46, verse 1. Uh, We are in a study on Joseph, and so far, Joseph has learned the hard way to have high expectations of God. Do you imagine when Joseph was in jail for year after year after year that his confidence and his trust in God began to diminish? And of course, the answer would be yes. And then God came through. Was not on his timeline? But when God came through, Joseph realized, nope, I will never, ever sell God short ever, ever, ever again. If Joseph in Egypt, being the number two, most second, most powerful person in the entire world, could have a conversation With Joseph in jail, here's what he would tell them. Relax, wait, be patient, don't ever give up because when God comes through, when God comes through and the promise he made to you at 17 years old, it's going to blow your mind and you will regret every moment you wasted in anxiety, shaking your fist at God, You will regret every single one of them. I'm telling you, there is a future you in this room who would like to have a conversation with you. And if he could or she could, they would sit down with you and say, wait. When you see this come full circle, it will be worth the wait. And you will regret every wagging finger that you have pointed to God in your heart. Wait, wait. Now his father, Joseph's father, his name is Jacob. Jacob. Now what's going to happen in Genesis 46 and 47 is actually Jacob's going to kind of move uh, to center stage. And so we're going to be talking more about Jacob today than Joseph, but, but here's what is happening with Jacob. Um, Jacob is having low expectations of God. Jacob is in grief. Jacob is broken. Jacob is growing old. Jacob is sad. Jacob's life is not working out the way he wanted to. He feels like the promises that God made to his grandfather and his father and then reiterated to him, he feels like these things are not Coming true. And here's what's going to happen. God is going to show Jacob, don't ever doubt me. When this whole thing comes full circle, you have to trust me because it's going to work out in a way that's going to exceed your expectations. Genesis 46.1, look at that with me. So Israel, that's his other name, Jacob, Israel, same guy, Joseph's dad. He took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. For those of you who are new, let me just give you a brief bit of context. Jacob is traveling to Egypt to come face to face with his beloved son, whom he thought has been dead for about two plus decades. Um, About... Uh, I think it was about 11 years ago, I did a funeral for a 19-year-old boy. He grew up in our youth group. I was his youth pastor, and um, one of the other pastors, Pastor Joe, was doing the funeral with me. And uh, I did the message, and Joe did this whole section of it that was probably one of the more unforgettable in a positive way for me uh, moments. And he got up and he shared something. He said, uh, I'm not gonna give a quote, I'm gonna give you the big, big idea, because it was like a 30-minute share, and I'll give you the 15-second version. He said, we all get married expecting one of us will die first. He said, we grew up with siblings expecting to be alive when at least one of them dies. This is just expectation. You have this in your brain, whether you think about it or not, it's just kind of in there. He says, we grew up with friends expecting someone will die before we do. But no parent is prepared for the loss of a child. It is unnatural and the deepest pain of loss one can experience. And I remember just it just put this whole thing in perspective for me. And the moment that I was preaching through Jacob's life with Joseph, like this this funeral was going through my brain. The uh, kid's name is Matt, and I was just thinking about wow, like this is for Jacob, this is an unnatural, this is the most painful experience a father can go through. And it's interesting because what you find with Jacob is if you find every single thing in the book of Genesis that Jacob says after the death of Joseph, it is all grieving, lament, and frustration. Like the, Moses, the, 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 the author, the narrator, wants you to just get this in your brain. Jacob is not okay. He's not Okay. The dude is struggling on deep emotional levels. And so God is going to meet him in this grief and this anxiety and this fear and this frustration. We're going to start to watch a number of things converge here that's going to make God's words to Jacob, I think, really, really meaningful. In verse 2, it says this, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Jacob, here I am. Verse 3, then he said, I am God. Love, he doesn't say, I'm a God. I'm God. This is it. There's nowhere else to go. This this is this is all you got. There is no other option. I am God. And I'm the God of your father. And in this moment, the promises that God made to Isaac, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Isaac, his dad. All these promises are coming back. And here's what he says: Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. You may be tempted to pass this over, um, but there is legitimate and profound fear in Jacob right now about going to Egypt. I'm going to give you about 35 reasons why he's going to be afraid. Not actually, but it's going to be a lot. Ready? Here's number one. Why might Jacob be afraid to go out to Egypt? But let's talk about reasons he might be afraid before he found out Joseph was there. Uh, remember, there's a famine in the land. They're all starving. They're about to die. They need food. Only Egypt has land, land, uh, food, thanks to Joseph and, and God. And, and so there's a temptation. Do we take our whole family? Do we uproot them? Do we go over? Well, we get to remember this about Egypt. Egypt has huge significance in the book of Genesis. The last time my grandfather was there, imagine you're, you're Jacob. The last time my grandfather was there, things went really bad. Do you guys remember the name of Jacob's grandfather? Abraham. And what happened when Abraham went to Egypt? He took his wife, told Pharaoh he's his sister. Pharaoh tried to take her and sleep with her, and then... Plagues like came upon Pharaoh and his household. It was like, what? And then Pharaoh found out, you lied to me. And then he basically kicks him out and says, don't come back here. And so here you are, like you're the grandson. So like, has that story been told? Do people know who Abraham is? What about Isaac, etc.? Here's number two. Here's why you might be afraid to go down. God told my dad not to go to Egypt. His dad again is? Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You can do it. I believe in you. Uh, He told Isaac, don't go down. Here's what he says to Isaac. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Like, this is a rule. You don't go there. Here's what I want you to do, Isaac. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, promises made to Abraham, repeated to Isaac. Don't go down there. Don't go over there. That's not where the promises are. The promises are here. And so if you are Jacob, you're wondering, well, this land... It's being decimated by famine. You you told me somehow a nation is going to emerge, but we're all about to die, every single last one of us. So how are you going to fulfill your promises? It feels impossible if we don't leave. Number three, Pharaoh has every reason not to give us food. Uh, There's two things you need to know. Number one is that uh, Jacob and his family, they're not Egyptian, which is a problem. But number two, Genesis 47 has this whole discourse about how Egyptians hate shepherds, like with a passion. They just hate them. And now you have this entire shepherding family, not from Egypt, going, and they're going to be standing before Pharaoh himself. And they've got a little bit of anxiety. Why would Pharaoh ever give Egyptians, the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low, food? Here's number four. Maybe God has abandoned me. I mean there are all these promises that he gave us but everyone's about to die and I can't go down to Egypt because if I go to Egypt I'm disobeying God's word and if I go down to Egypt God won't be with me because he said he'll be with me in this land and, and I remember earlier in my life I left the promised land you remember that? He left the promised land uh, because he lied to his brother Esau and then he was gone for a couple decades you remember how bad it went for him and he, God finally had to drag him back to the promised land he's like "If I've already left once like, do I leave again? because that's not the best either so let's think about some other reasons. Like, why would Jacob be afraid to go to Egypt? I mean, you can see this isn't simple. This is a complex man with a lot of history and a lot of emotions and a lot of relationships. Why would he be afraid to go down to Egypt after he found out Joseph was there? You would think if he heard that his son was alive, that he would be like, yes, let's go figure out. Let's go meet my son. And, and he does go, but he goes with an incredible amount of fear. Well, here's, here's one. My abandoned son has the power to kill my whole family. You gotta remember, the brothers threw him into a pit, beat him to a pulp, pleaded for his life, tried to kill him, decided to take him out, sold him for money, and left him in jail for years after year after year after year. Vengeance is in order, is it not? And so you don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to kill everybody? Is this a ploy just to get the whole family there? You don't know what's happened in the heart of somebody when they've been in prison and a slave and beaten and tried to be killed by blood. And for all they know, maybe Jacob was up to it. Maybe Jacob knew about this. Maybe Jacob knew he was a slave and then he never actually went to go get his son. There's this whole what if scenario that could be going on in Joseph's mind while he's in prison. My abandoned son has the power to kill me and my name. One of the greatest fears for this culture at this time and place is that your name would be eradicated from the earth. Not only would he kill all of us, but our whole legacy would die in this very moment. I think there's another actual level to this. My abandoned son has abandoned his faith, or at least it appears so. Do you remember who Joseph's married to? A pagan cult priestess. Looks like an Egyptian talks like an egyptian everything the guy's egyptian for all practical purposes let me give you an illustration i want you to imagine you thought your son was dead 20 years later you find out he's the he's the head of the muslim brotherhood in iran and you're a faithful follower of jesus christ would you be hesitant to go talk to him you think your son is dead for 20 years you find out he's the head of the communist party in china And you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you be hesitant to go talk to him? And now you hear that your son is the second in command. And he's married and had children with, a cult priestess. And these people, by and large, hate shepherds. And, by the way, your family tried to end him and then sold him to slavery and stole the best years of his life. Are you sure not understand the complexity of this scenario? It just says, God told him, don't be afraid. And we gloss over that. I'm telling you, God is intervening in one of the most meaningful emotional ways into this man's heart and life. And the dude is excited on the one hand, but he is afraid because what is on the other side of this is scary. He's not just experiencing fear, I guarantee confusion, and God's going to do something so profoundly generous. And I don't want you to miss this. Because what God is about to do for Jacob, he has already done for every one of us in this room. He goes on in verse 3, he says, For there I will make you into a great nation. Egypt? But the, but the promises are, they're in Israel. well, Not what we call Israel. They're in the promised land. There's a little bit of confusion here, and he's like, well, uh, I'm giving you this land. Don't ever leave it. Don't go down to Egypt. We're going to build a nation here. But then he says to him, go, because I'm going to do something different. I get, okay, Jacob, I get you have a time frame. I get that you have an expectation of how it's all going to work out. But never once did I ever say to you that I wouldn't take you there. In fact, we're going to learn in a little bit that God already told his grandfather about this entire plan. He goes on and says in verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Every promise that God speaks to us and to Jacob is addressing a resident current fear. And the fear is that if he leaves, that God won't be with him. He probably remembers the emotional absence, the palpable absence of being out of the land, running for his life, going to his uncle Laban, leaving the promised land in his early years. He probably remembers that feeling of being abandoned by God. and He's like, I don't ever want to experience that ever Again. You had to drag me back into the promised land. You had to drag me against my will, it felt like. I don't ever want to do that again. I know what it's like to be out of the land and to be out of your presence. And he says, I will also bring you up again, meaning back to the land geographically. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob, I know your fears. I know your concerns. I know your anxieties. I know it all. And he speaks to his mind and his heart he reiterates the former promises that Jacob knew and this is so central because for two decades all we know of the man is grieving lament and frustration and God enters right into this and now this is starting to come full circle and God's going to teach Jacob a really important lesson don't ever doubt me again Don't have low expectations of me. And don't take your expectations and transfer them to my timeline. Because I won't play by your rules. You won't make me bend the knee. I'm not worried about PR at all. We are for him, he's not for himself. So here's a big question. You may not know how the story unfolds. Let me just tell you. Um, The people of God go to Egypt for 400 years, eventually, they become slaves and oppressed. Here's the question. God, hello? God, if you sorry. If you are in control of pharaoh's nations, famines, etc., why do it this way? Like if the goal is to bring your people to the promised land and to build a nation where the Messiah is going to come, like we know what God wants to do, what is the point? Of bringing the people of God to Egypt for 400 years, by the way. Like, I I can't rationalize that in any way, shape, or form. I'm trying to figure this out. It's interesting because at the very beginning, when God builds his relationship with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, I want you to listen. I'll put it on the screen, but I want you to just hear the promise that God made to Abraham. Here's what he says At the time, Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Isn't that interesting? And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Did God plan this series of events? Did God tell them about the series of events? And the answer is Yes, now now watch the reason. This is, I think, very interesting. Verse 14, "But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that is, Egypt. Um, in case you don't know, they, they got judged. So um, <laughs> And afterward, they, your people, they will come out with great possessions. By the way, when the Israelites left Egypt, what did they have with them? All the goods and the gold of Egypt. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they, your ancestors, shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now listen to this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What? Have you ever read that? And you're like, I don't even, what what do the Amorites have to do with anything? Let me tell you. Because in the promised land, where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph were sojourning, that land is actually owned by a different group of people. That land is run primarily by the Amorites. The Amorites eventually are one of the Canaanite tribes. And here's, here's in God's mercy and justice and righteousness. He looks at the Amorites and says, they don't yet deserve to be kicked out of this land because they're not evil enough yet. It's interesting. You start to see that even God has standards. Like sometimes we think of God like he's willy-nilly, like, ah, you gone and you're dead and you're gone. We're going to destroy you. Like, there is an international patience that God has to the point where he says with his omniscience, it would be unjust for me to remove these people from the land because they have not yet stewarded it badly enough to be kicked out of it. You got to think about land like this. Think about land in such a way that God owns all the land and every nation right, is stewarding that land for a series of time. Who is free to take someone out of a land? And it would be God, right? And so God waits and he looks down the quarters of time and here's what he says. Honestly, it's going to be about 400 years until I can, like, morally, ethically justify sending you in and then obliterating everybody in the land. And so God, even in his righteousness and justice, you see this really unique, I think, patience as he deals with nations and timelines and ethics and morals and stewardship of the lands that really God, at the end of the day, owns. And then there's this question of how could God ever, ever, ever um, in any way tell one nation to come in and take over another? And I'm not making any, like, American Indian, United States geopolitical, like, implications here. Just, I know you can, you're probably hearing some of that. I'm not going there. I'm literally just talking about this. No comments to that other side. Uh, at all, But here's what we find. like God is free to do this, and people are concerned, well, how could he do that? And one of the facts that people don't really understand when, when you think about nations coming into other nations in this time is absolutely how vile and terribly evil these people are to the point where I've shared this with you, but if you're new, you can hear it again. If you were a woman and you walked into one of their tribes, they would violate you. They would cut you into pieces, and they would do things with you that are unimaginable. They wouldn't think twice about it. But this is what they would do with anybody. They were vile and grotesque, and they were just some of the worst plausible humans you could imagine. Whatever happened in World, World, World War II with Hitler and Germany and Nazis doesn't even compare to the, to the, to the grotesque morality of these tribes. You've you got to get out of your brain. These aren't just like normal tribes uh, a few thousand uh, years ago that we're dealing with here. These are tribes that are a threat to everything good and righteous in this world. And God understood that. And he waited until it got to a point where it was morally righteous and just to remove them from their land. And so here's what we find. God made a promise to his grandfather. And that promise should have been and probably was retold from one generation to the next. We know that Moses, multiple generations down the line, when he got the story, the oral tradition, he knew the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now watch what happens. Chapter forty-six, verse twenty-nine. Just watch God exceed Jacob's low expectations. Then Joseph prepared his chariot. Isn't that, that kind of cool? Like he comes in on a chariot. That's pretty sweet. He comes in in his Bentley. <laughs> That's what I picture it as. He went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. This beautiful land that Pharaoh and Joseph were giving to the entire family. He presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and I know that you are still alive. Jacob speaks and for the first time we don't see grieving and lament and frustration. We see somebody whose expectations of God are going up possibly even some regret for not having greater confidence in God in the midst of, of his pain. And uh, we need to go forward one whole chapter, Genesis 47. You can read all the stuff in between, and um, but I want to go to Genesis 47, 27. And I love what this shows us about Jacob. Here's, here's what it says. Thus Israel, he settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land 17 years. Like he, 17 years prior to his death, he was like, I can die now. Let's go. Like, let's end this thing. And God keeps him alive for 17 more years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And let's be honest, if you lived in the opulence of Goshen with Joseph as your number two, do you think it's reasonable that the opulence of Egypt would have grown his heart numb to the promises of God? Is it, is it possible? Let's actually make a current geopolitical analogy here. Is it possible the opulence of the culture we live in makes us numb to the promises of God? Absolutely. And it's a fight. And in this moment, we read and we're trying to figure out what's, what's Jacob going to do in this 17-year time frame? Verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me, I love this line, do not bury me in Egypt. God made a promise to me. He promised me that I would be brought up out of this land, and he promised me that my bones would go to the promised land with my grandfather Abraham, with my father Isaac. Do not leave me here. God made a promise to me, and he is still holding on to the promise of God 17 years later, expecting that God himself would come through in this. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Let me lie with my fathers. He answered, Joseph said, I will do as you have said. And he said to me, I love this, swear to me. And he swore to him. Like, like, Jacob's like, no, no, you don't understand. This has to happen. Show your children and your grandchildren that the promises of God never come back empty. Show them that our God is a promise keeper. Make this thing happen. Uh, finally, there's one last line in this text that we're looking at. It says this. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, again, this might be, if you're not being patient with the text, it might be something you just kind of gloss over. Don't gloss over this. Because what Moses is trying to show you as he pens this story is God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. Go back to Joseph at 17 years old and let's look at what happened. Genesis 37:10. When he told it, the dreams, to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him, Jacob, and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Do you see the irony yet? In Genesis chapter 46, when they're reunited, Jacob never bowed. In fact, something different happened. Look what happened here. Joseph prepared his chariot. He went up to meet his father in Goshen. Then he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And this is what Joseph does to his father. And Israel says, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are you still alive. But if you're an attentive reader, you are waiting for the moment where Jacob bows and now it's the time of his death. And here's what Moses wants you to know. When God gave Joseph that dream that his brothers and his father would bow down to him, it wasn't until the moments of his death. But here's what Moses wants you to know. All of these prophecies and promises that God has made, they will not probably come to fulfillment in the time frame that you're expecting or wanting. But doggone it, not one single promise will be left unfulfilled by our God, Period. You have a promise keeper as your God. He covenants himself to you personally, promises himself to you, promises to finish what he starts, promises to always be with you, promises to never forsake you, promises you a new body, a new heaven, and a new earth. And, and, and it's really interesting because here's the deal. When God, when, when God talks to Jacob, the promises that he gives to Jacob will not be fulfilled in his life. When God makes promises to Abraham, they will not be fulfilled in his life. And so here's, here's just another reality being, being a follower of Christ. I don't need the promises to be fulfilled while I'm alive to have utter and total confidence in God. Because the promises, by and large, no, no offense, they're not actually about you at the end of the day. Like there's something bigger that God is up to, and it transcends my short little life. Aren't you glad that God is up to something bigger than just you? Well, maybe you're not, but you should be because he is. I want to share with you just two so-whats. These these are two simple so-whats that uh, if you blow them off, fine. Your expectations of God will go down, your disobedience will rise, and your heart will grow numb to him. But I want to just say this. Number one, recognize quickly the symptoms of low expectations of God. Recognize them very quickly. Let me give you a handful of them. And if you're starting to see these in your heart and life, maybe it's time to sit down with somebody Maybe it's time to get some pastoral or professional counseling. Maybe you need to sit down with a mentor and just process this out. Uh, here's one. I've stopped asking God to intervene. Gratitude in my prayer life is becoming more and more absent. And, and by the way, I don't mean, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Um, I don't mean like, you know, the, the things we just say on repeat that we don't think about and mean. I mean actual, sincere, gut-wrenching, gut-gratitude to God, like if that's waning, your expectations of God are probably diminishing as well. I speak words of pessimism when I think about the future. I tend to sulk in my pain and my disappointments. I increasingly live as if the promises are not real, as if this life is all that matters all of these and more are symptoms that your expectations of God are waning. And I'm telling you this, when your expectations of God begin to diminish, confidence, trust, and connection with God begin to diminish as well. And that's not what he wants. So what number two? Effective discipleship of Jesus hinges, hinges on our attitudes to God's promises, hinges Uh, Let me just say it as bluntly as this. You will not see the vast majority of, of the promises of God fulfilled while you're alive. That was never the intent. The promises are handed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And because we have seen so many promises of God fulfilled, even over millennia in the past, here's what we know. When I receive the promises of God from my mentors, my pastors, my parents, my teachers, and I take these promises, I hand them off to the next generation, fulfillment is not the point, If you want fulfillment now, the vast majority of the promises of God will not be fulfilled here and now. And if you want them fulfilled in the way you expect them to do, God is a master and not meeting the expectations that you transferred to him. God, you promise you're always with me, but I refuse to acknowledge that unless you make me feel like it. He's like, I'm not gonna make you feel like it. You're not gonna put demands on me. I am, whether you feel it or not. The promise is true, and we live as if it's true despite whether we feel it experience or see it. And so this is mature discipleship. We take the promises of God, and if they're real, we don't make them contingent on my emotions. And if they're ones that won't be fulfilled until after our death, we take them, and then we hand them off to the next generation. I will not get a new body until I am dead. Jesus comes back and creates a new heaven and a new earth. That will not happen. But I will take this promise, and I will hand it off to you and to my children and my children's children and say, wait, wait for it, wait for it. He is coming back. And when he does come back, it will blow your mind and you will regret not having confidence and not living as if there is more to this world than just this world. Everybody who gets to the other side of the promises will always look back and say, man, why did I doubt that? You will regret all of the doubt. The doubt is real. I have doubts. You have doubts. We all have low expectations at different times. But I'm telling you, mature discipleship is about fighting the low expectations. It is about taking these promises of God and our attitude toward them must be patient. Must be patient. The next generation needs them from us. And if you give them the promises of God with low expectations, they will have no expectations. And so we fight to not be that man, that woman, that student, that child who doubts that God is absolutely going to do what he says he is going to do. He's coming again. There is a resurrection. He is always with you fear not his timetable is perfect your expectations are not his and he's not concerned he's concerned with you eventually seeing the genius plan of god unravel before your eyes in a beautiful meaningful way the jewish people were made promises thousands of years before jesus ever came in the first incarnation one generation after another one generation after another one generation after another Waiting, waiting, waiting. Do you know what happened by the time Jesus actually came? Generally speaking, lethargy to the promises of God. Religious lethargy, cultural lethargy, yeah, whatever. Even to the point where some people, uh, some of the religious leaders would say, yeah, it's not a literal thing. It was more of a moral, metaphorical thing. You know. And, and the Pharisees, believe it or not, were one of the few groups who tried to at least hold on to the doctrinal purity of the promises of God. And, and then Jesus comes and they were so numb to it that they, they couldn't even see it. A few people did, but not many. And so here's what we do as believers, right? We have this really amazing track record where we look back and we see, wow, the people of God have always waited for generations and millennia for the promises to come true. That's, that's normal. But then you look at Jesus, and here's the only thing you can conclude. God keeps his promises, period. In fact, he keeps his promise in a way that exceeds what we thought was possible. Now, right now, all, all we've seen, right, tangibly with our eyes, is we've seen the Messiah come, be murdered, and then rise again from the dead. We've seen the Holy Spirit fall. We've seen our sins forgiven, etc. We haven't yet seen Jesus come back a second time. We haven't seen the judgment, the new earth, the final resurrection. Anybody else waiting for that one? Like, that's out there. But here's what we know. What we have seen has been unbelievable. And what we have seen, we have seen him fulfill his word all throughout the Old Testament with Jesus. And now the New Testament authors are writing to us saying, he's coming again. Wait, be patient. It's going to happen. And so when we celebrate communion, um, here's what we do. We are declaring again that because he kept his promise once, we set our eyes and our hearts to the future to say, he is coming again. And then we take these promises and then we give them away to the next generation. Why? Because they need them. They need to see confidence. They need to know that these are things that are certain. Look, he came once for certain. He will come most certainly again. He took a really long time to come the first time. He's taken a really long time to come the second time. That's just what God does. And if it doesn't happen in your life, you hold the baton, you give it, and you say, I don't care if Jesus waits to way after you're dead. You give this baton to the next generation. He kept his word once. He's going to keep it again. That's what we do. This is discipleship. This is giving the promises of God. But I'm telling you, when your low expectations of God are there, you give weak promises. Your kids, the people you disciple, they see past your faithlessness. They see past your apathy. They see past your numbness. Which is why, if we're gonna be effective disciples and disciple makers, we hold on to these things. We are passionate about these things. We don't just think about the resurrection on Easter It is a part of the way we think about our bodies in the future and life. And we're gonna celebrate communion and you may be new with us and you don't know what we do. Let me just say it very simply. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is your savior and God, that he died on the cross, for your sins, he rose again from the dead. If you are holding on to the promise of God, I don't need you to be passionate right now. I need you to believe and have a sincere salvation. I get some of you are here and you're discouraged and you're trying to get passionate about the promises of God in the future. Thankfully, communion is not for people who nailed it. Amen? Amen. Because none of us would be taking it at all. But if you've trusted in Christ, I don't care where you go to church I need to know you believe in Jesus and the gospel, that you are not trying to earn your salvation. I wanna invite you, would you partake together um, with us? This is our opportunity to put our hearts and minds back to this time and space 2,000 years ago and to remember that our God keeps his promises then and he will keep them into the future. We're gonna have a time of silence and it'll be an opportunity just for you to talk with God, to listen, to pray, to confess. When done, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna stand up together and uh, we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship our God who conquered death and the grave and has given us hope. Amen? Let's have a time of silence.